So um, I gather you have a do you have a two bishvat seder? Some people do something like that. So. Four cups of wine and other things. <laughs> How does it usually work, Tubishvat? Right, so I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about it. Yeah. I actually want to talk about Tubishvat, but I'm not going to overlap. I really want to give you some halakhic background. <laughs> but um, the Tubishvat Seder uh, comes from a sefer, uh, the generation after the Arizal. And the sefer is called Chemdas Hayamim. And uh, Chemdas Hayamim is actually a very, very, very controversial sefer. I don't know what Chabad's position on it is. But among most Hasidim, they consider this to be a very holy sefer, and they use it for many, many minhagim that are based on Kabbalah. And the Chemdash Yamim is quoted as a very, very distinguished and important sefer. But Rabbi Yaakov Emden took the position that it was written by uh, an associate of Shabzai Tzvi, the false Mashiach, oh. and it's totally treif. So as a result, the Chemdash Yamim has a tremendous, you know, everybody is, has opposite views. There are some that consider it Kodesh Kedoshim, and there are others that consider it to be forbidden to even, to even own. So this is still a bit of an unresolved issue. Again, I, I, don't, I don't know what the, the Rebbe's position was on this. I'd like to uh, find out. But be it as it may, uh, the Chemdas Hayamim does create a Seder al pi Kabbalah uh, for Tu Bishvat. And the logic of it is that Tu Bishvat is the Rosh Hashanah for trees, and the Torah says a human being is like a tree. This is in uh, Devarim, Ki Parshas Ki And the Mepharshim explained we are like an upside-down tree because a normal tree has its roots in the earth and it goes towards Shemayim. We are the opposite. We have our roots, the Shairish, the root of our Neshama is in Shemayim with Hashem and we grow, so to speak, into the earth. Maybe that's why we're so confused. We're upside down. We have uh, vertigo and everything else. But we are an upside down tree, meaning our yanika, our nurturance is mina shamayim. And Hashem put us in the world, because he wanted his godliness to be in this world. But if the idea is that a human being is like a tree, so all of the inyanim of his chachis, of his uh, renewal of tubishvas, are going to be relevant to us as human beings. And there are a lot of lessons, so many lessons from trees. First of all, it's a lesson not to despair because look, look, at, the, look at it the following way. Uh, the winter is a time when things don't seem to be growing. All of the fruit has already been harvested. All of the leaves have already fall, fallen down. You're in the middle of the winter. In some places there's snow. All right, Eretisrael is usually not snow, but like nothing seems to be growing. But what is happening? deep inside the tree, and you can't see it from the outside, there is the sap that is rising from the roots. And from that sap, there's going to be new growth. There's going to be the flowers, and then from the flowers, then you'll, the flower will drop, then you'll have the bud, and from the bud, there'll be the fruit. So really, this shows you what's called the pintoliyid, that even if a Jew looks like he's empty, he has no fruit, he has no flowers, he has no mitzvos. Inside, there is something that you never know that's there, that's vibrant, and that's alive, and will produce life, a life. So that's a, that itself is a very important lesson. It reminds us to look at every Jew, including ourselves, as having a great, great godly potential, like the tree, even when that potential is not always visible right, from the outside. It also gives a person chizuk 
because it reminds a person that in the rhythms of life, there are times of aliyah, going up, and times of going down, and sometimes the dormancy period is the necessary preparation for the going up. And therefore, the tree has to go through the winter cycle in order to have the renewal of spring. Uh, Tu B'Shvat is normally exactly two months before Pesach. This year, it's three months before Pesach because we have two Adars. But again, the 15th of Shabbat is the beginning of the process that will culminate in the 15th of Nisan. The 15th of Nisan is the ripening of the fruit of Am Yisrael. The 15th of Shabbat is the invisible hachana that takes place. By the way, I got a, I got a wedding invitation from somebody, and uh, on the invitation, there was a word from the Rebbe, which was such a nice word, I'll, I'll share it to you. The Rebbe said, you know, it's a leap year, right? So some people say, oh, it's all, it's a, the year is too long, there's so long until Pesach. So this is what the Rebbe said. Maybe, maybe you heard this. The Rebbe said that Chazal say, when Adar comes in, we're not yet in Adar, but Adar comes in, Marvin Besimcha, you increase Simcha. So when there are two Adars, you have two months of Simcha. That's 60 days of Simcha, starting from the 30th of Shvat, uh, which is the first day of Rosh Chodesh Adar. Now, the Rebbe then said, this is really a nice, a nice twist. There's an important principle about 60, which is very, very relevant to the laws of Kashras. Did you ever, you, I'm, I'm sure you may know this law. Let's imagine you have meat soup and some milk falls into the meat soup. So is the soup treif? Because meat and milk, you're not allowed to eat. Is it soup treif or not? So it depends how many more times the soup is uh, can I get the milk. If you have 60 times the amount of milk that fell in, the milk gets nullified in the 60. This is called batel b'shishim. It's nullified in 60. Same thing in the opposite. If you have... Uh, uh, some meat gravy that falls into milk soup or whatever it would be. So, once again, if you have 60 times the milk, can I get the meat? So 60 in halacha is the number that nullifies the opposite. By the way, even by crepe it's that way, not, not just by meat and milk. If you mamish at chazer, I, I know that probably most of us would be disgusted, we wouldn't want to eat it, but according to halacha, if... Uh, some chazer fell into the kosher food, it would be nullified in 60. Now, you're not allowed to do it deliberately. You can't do it deliberately. I can't say, oh, I'd like a little milk in my meat soup. You know, if you do it deliberately, then it's not nullified. But if an accident happens, it's bottle b'shishim, right? Very, so the Rebbe, all right, so that, that's, that's known. That's not the Rebbe's chiddush. That's, that's a well-known halacha. So the Rebbe says, though, if 60 nullifies the opposite, Right? It, right, the 60 meat nullifies the milk and 60 milk nullifies the meat and 60 kosher nullifies the tray so 60 days of simcha nullifies all the sadness and all of the disappointments in life so therefore this year we're very lucky because since we have 60 days of simcha it's going to nullify all of the tsaros and all of the difficulties that's, that's a really wonderful, wonderful uh, Vort in which uh, you know the leap year has a special koach of two months of simcha, and therefore we get the benefit of bato b'shishim uh, with respect to everything that is atzvus, everything that is considered to be sad. So be it as it may, going back to Tu B'Shvat, though Tu B'Shvat really reminds us of the hidden potential in a Jew, what's called the pintel the spark of the Jew that may not be visible on the outside, 
but it's in there because the tree is dead. The tree is lifeless. The tree looks like nothing's happening. But inside, all of these processes are going on. You see, it's an amazing thing. And Tuvishvat is celebrating not the visible successes of life because nothing's visible yet. The tree is going to look, I promise you, the tree will look exactly the same the day after Tuvishvat that it looked on the day before Tuvishvat. Externally, it looks the same. But something has happened. The sap has come up. The chiyos, the life, is in there. Right? So that, that's uh, the very important message, generally, of Tuvishvat. And, of course, Tuvishvat also reminds us to be grateful to Hashem uh, for all of the beauties that He's put into the, into the world. Uh, the Chayvah Salavavas, one of the great uh, ethical svarim, going all the way back to the uh, one, year 1000, you know, before the Rambam even, uh, writes that Hashem created a world in which many, many things are not necessary for survival. I mean, we have to eat, okay, given that, <coughs> given that reality, <coughs> but there's no need for food to taste good, and there's no need for food to have colors. Hashem could have made a mush, like you get, some, right, just uh, some, some uh, mush that doesn't taste like anything. It'll keep you alive. So why does Hashem create color, and why does He create taste, and why does He create music? All of this is just the chesed of giving us pleasures in life that is more than we need for survival. So it's not just Hashem keeps us alive. Obviously, that's the big one. But Hashem gives us all sorts of treats that go beyond what is necessary uh, for survival. And this is a time of hakara satov for that. And that's why there's such an Indian to eat all sorts of different types of fruits. So now, let's talk about... Yeah. Didn't hear you. What was the source? Yeah, this is a sefer called Chemdas Hayamim. Uh, and as I say, the Sefer has a very controversial history. Uh, now, the chapter of Tubishvat was taken out and published in a separate Sefer uh, called Pre Eitz Hadar, which means the fruit of the beautiful tree. And uh, therefore, you can also get the Tubishvat Seder in a smaller book called Pre Eitz Hadar. And uh, it became very, very popular among Svardim and among many, many Hasidim. Uh, among the non-Hasidic Ashkenazim, it was not such a big deal. Although in recent years, uh, people, uh, people are doing it, just like a lot of Hasidic customs. For example, upsharing, giving, the, uh, you know, giving a haircut to a three-year-old, uh, was never, I mean, it was not a, it was not a non-Hasidic minog, but now everybody, everybody does it. It just, just becomes uh, something that everybody does. So too much about Seder, not everybody does, but a lot of people uh, do it. And the reform movement likes it a lot for some reason. And, you know, they celebrate the environment and the like. Uh, so you'll see if you look up uh, Tubishvat Seder on a computer, you will get like a hundred reform uh, manuals, which I would not suggest you look to as authoritative. Uh, but still, they're into the Tubishvat Seder. So I just want to discuss a little bit kabbalistically how, how it works. Yeah. Um, so the, the source that said that I Gives us extra pleasures and joys in life? Yeah. Oh, that's, oh, that's the Chobat Salababas. Oh, okay. oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I, I, I misspoke. The Tubishvat Seder is from Chemdas Hayamim, which is later. But the source that Hashem gives you pleasure beyond what you need for survival, that's in the Chobos Halababas. Now, Chobos Halababas, there is no machlokis about that Sefer. That Sefer is, is one of the greatest uh, uh, ethical Sifrei Musar that we ever have. So, uh, 
Chavos Alubavos is absolutely everybody. Misnagdim, Chasidim, everybody looks at the Chavos Alubavos. In fact, the Rambam even says it was his father's favorite sefer, Chavos Alubavos. It was written in Arabic, actually, but but you know we have the you know we have a translation in Hebrew, and it's been translated in English and uh, and, and 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 the like. And that's an important idea that Hashem's Chesed is beyond the minimum. It's, it's, he doesn't just give us enough to stay alive, but He gives us pleasures in life. And the Talmud Yerushalmi says, and this is pretty amazing, that after 120 years, Hashem is going to hold you to account for every pleasure you could have got from the world that you didn't get. Hmm. Now, at first glance, that sounds, huh? What does that mean? I'm supposed to like, go out and like, you know, uh, drink and, and, and do all sorts of things? So obviously we mean in moderation, but a person should appreciate the world. A person shouldn't have the attitude, oh, the world is bad and you know, I'm just going to live on bread and water. No, a person should understand Hashem put things in the world that we should come and, and give thanks to him by virtue of his kindness. Certainly, uh, life uh, is mainly, I mean, the most important part of life is the ruchnius, the avodah that we have. But the gashmias, again, this is again a big theme of Hasidus generally, that we can take the physical of life and we can elevate it and sanctify it. So we don't reject the physical, we take the physical and we use it. Right? That's uh, the idea of, yeah. Who said this about the about Hashem's going to hold you accountable after? This is the Talmud Yerushalmi. That's from from the from the not from the Babylonian Gemara, but from the Yerushalmi Gemara. Okay, so basically, therefore, the Tu Bishvat Seder as 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 a general theme is really devoted to four ideas. They overlap a lot. Idea number one is the human being is compared to a tree in terms of hidden potential. Uh, number two. Gratitude to Hashem for the beauties and diversities of taste and color that he puts into the world, hakara satov. Uh, the third idea is the idea that we can sanctify Hashem with the physical, even by eating and the like, that we don't sanctify Hashem only by spiritual things, but we sanctify Hashem even by the physical. And in fact, that's actually the inner meaning of Dira B'tachtainim, right? the, the Alter Rebbe's famous expression, which is really from a medrash, that Hashem wanted there to be a Dira, his dwelling place should be in the lowly world, right? Dira B'tachtainim. The inner meaning of that is Hashem wants us to take the physical that on one level is furthest away from Hashem and infuse it with Kedusha and, uh, and, and the like. That is the Dira, that is how you make a dwelling place for Hashem uh, in the Tachtainim. Uh, uh, and indeed, uh, that is the theme in which the eating of peros on Tu Bishvat is a tikkun, a rectification. This is the fourth idea for the chait of Adam HaRishain. Because what was the chait of Adam HaRishain? The eating of the fruit was a rebellion against Hashem. And now we eat the fruit to sanctify, to make a bracha and, and, and the like. So, Based on this, there are two components. What was the first yeah. reason you said? Uh, the first reason was because the human being is compared to a tree. Therefore, oh. we look at the tree, <coughs> and that teaches us about, about ourselves. Okay, so that's one idea. Gratitude is the other idea. The third idea is sanctifying the physical. The fourth idea is rectifying the sin 
of the Yetz Hadas, which was the original sin that caused the downfall of the human race. And Tu Bishvat, we can rectify it by taking the same vehicle of sin and using it to, to elevate ourselves. Yeah, dear friend. Well, we're an upside-down tree because um, an earthly tree has its roots in the ground and it reaches up to heaven. We have our roots in heaven and we come into the earth, right? So we're upside-down in that, in, that, in that way. Okay. How does it fix Chet Well, because what you're doing is that uh, the Chet of the Eitz was taking Achila, taking eating, and using it to rebel against Hashem. Because Hashem said, don't eat. Here, what we're doing is we're taking peros and we are reciting brachos uh, and we are eating l'shem shomayim. So we're taking the very act that uh, rebelled against Hashem and we're using it to serve Hashem. Right? That's a tikkun. By the way, it's also brought down in many svarim uh, that uh, because this is the uh, Rosh Hashanah for trees, one should pray on this day that they should be zocha to a beautiful esrog coming sukkahs. Uh, that it's mesugal for, for esrogim. Now, admittedly, I, I will say, although because of Shemitah, actually, that is a little complicated, but, but you know, in, you have to remember that in Europe, uh, getting a kosher, you know, not now, but I mean, in the, uh, you know, 100 years ago, getting a kosher esrog was a very, very difficult thing. In fact, it was very common in many communities, that maybe there was only one esrog in the whole city. Like the Rav got an esrog, or the Rebbe got an esrog, and everybody would line up to say a bracha on the Rebbe's esrog. Nobody could afford it. Nobody could get it. You're living in Poland. You couldn't get an esrog. Esrogs don't grow in Poland, that's for sure. Um, but what do they say? Um, oh, that's, that's, that's about a chicken. What do they say? Uh, that, that's not, it's a similar joke that if somebody was eating chicken soup during the week, uh, either they were sick or the chicken was sick. Mm-hmm. Uh, one or the other. But by an orange, they have a similar, I don't remember the exact word, but by an orange, they have a similar joke. That if somebody's eating an orange, uh, either they're sick or the orange is pretty, pretty rotten, the orange is pretty sick, or whatever it is. Uh, these fruits, we're not, you know, we're so used to having fruits all the time that we don't realize uh, that they were scarce, uh, that they were very hard to get. And uh, an esrog, people didn't have, really. People sometimes save up their life savings to buy an esrog. In fact, there's a whole story, a beautiful, beautiful story about a, a person. It only lasts for one year. Only lasts for one year. For one week. Not that's one year. In fact, they have a beautiful old story about, uh, I mean, it's a sad story, too, about a very poor man and his wife. They decided their dream in life was to get an esrog, get a beautiful esrog. And they were so poor. So he would save, like the Copics, he would save little pennies from here and there. And he saved for like 10, 20 years. And he goes to the Esrog merchant. And the Esrog merchant said, not enough money, not enough, not enough. So a few more years, he brings it, he finally has enough money for a beautiful, beautiful Esrog. And uh, he, you know, tells his wife, and apparently, like, he sold everything. He sold their house. They were in the street. Like, it was everything was, uh, like, uh, gone for this Ezra. So she was very upset, understandably so, because they had children. They had people, children they had to marry off. 
And she said, how can you do such a thing? You destroyed our life. I mean, you know, you, you, could, you could be Yotze the Mitzvah with the Rav's Ezra. So the story goes, I mean, it's not such a nice part of the story, that she took the Ezra and she threw it against the wall. Just it was a moment, a moment that she lost control because she saw that he just destroyed everything. So he said, again, this is not such a positive woman story, but, but, but he said, Hashem, no, I gave away all, I have no money, I have no home, I have no Esrog, but I'm not going to let my Shalom bias be taken away, too. So he forgave her, and, you know, and then she was happy with what he did, and uh, they lived happily ever after in there in their poverty. But this is... <laughs> yeah, but I mean, it's, it's the fact that she did it... But, but again, but you can understand her frustration. You can understand her, her frustration. That, I mean, that's, that's the nature of things, that uh, sometimes a person loses it. You know, we have to try to control, but sometimes it's very, very difficult. Yeah. Is that holistically even acceptable for him to do that, considering that he was, like, he's responsible for making sure she has a roof over her head to a certain degree? And... The truth of the matter is, if he would have asked a, a rav or a posek, uh, should he do it, the posek for sure would say he should not have done it. He should not have done it. This is an example of what Chazal say, that sometimes love can distort a person's judgment. This is a statement in the Gemara. A person has a love for Hashem and a love for a mitzvah, and that's a wonderful, wonderful thing, but if it's not balanced uh, with the sense of judgment and gevura, the love can be like a fire, right? It's like a fire that's out of control. And a fire that's out of control can also destroy. So, so you are correct. Halakhically, it was not the right thing. But his motives were so, uh, his motives were so pure. That's something, you know. Uh, okay. So, so the Tupishvat Seder is based on these uh, ideas, but the way, they get, the way it's done is very, very interesting. First, there's a concept of four cups of wine are drunk at various points in the Seder. And of course, that's obviously a parallel to the Pesach Seder. Uh, but here, uh, the Chemdas Hayamim writes, this is a little Kabbalistic, that the four cups of wine are connected the four worlds. Again, I'm not sure how much you've gone into this. Uh, have you learned about the four spiritual worlds, the world of Atsilas, which is the world of pure emanation, which is Elokus, that's pure godliness that comes from God. And then it gets more and more physical, the world of Bria, creation, the world of Yitzira, the world of formation, and then our physical world, which is called the world of Asiya. So in other words, Atsilas is the highest, highest, highest spiritual level but then it comes down into the world of Asiya, right? So the way it works is this. In the four cups, we're trying to pull spiritual powers from the world of Asilas down to the physical world of Asiya. So the first cup is our connection to Asilas. The second cup is pulling it down to Bria. The third cup is pulling it down to Yitzira. The fourth cup is pulling it down to Asiya. Now, based on this, the, the, the way the composition of the wine changes. The first cup is pure white wine. 
the second cup adds a little red to the white. The third cup is half-half, half red, half white. And the fourth cup is mostly red, but you add a little white. Of course, adding, adding white to red, you're not going to see anything, but, but there, is red, there is white that's within the, the red wine. And the way it works is this. White is the color of mercy, rachamim. And red is the color of judgment and din. Inatzilus, which is the root of all of the worlds, everything is rachamim. The differentiation that we perceive between kindness and, and judgment, between chesed and gevura, is only a perception that we have on the lower level where sometimes I see God's mercy and sometimes I see God's punishment. That's how I perceive things and the lower levels of the world. But if you go to the ultimate root of even the gevuras, the gevura is ultimately chesed. So in the world of Atsilos, the wine is white, so to speak, because the root of everything is Hashem's rachamim, Hashem's chesed, Hashem's love, Hashem's compassion. Even the gevura is there, really, as an act of love to give us direction, give us kapara, encourage us to do tshuva. And then, as you get progressively lower and lower, the chesed is still there, but it gets concealed by the gevuros. And that's why even in the last cup, you still have the white wine, even though it seems to be enveloped by red, you see? So that's the idea of the four cups in which you're trying to be moshech, you're trying to bring down divine shefa, divine beneficence, divine influences from the world of Asilos down to the world of Asiya, which is our world, and yes, godliness becomes more and more concealed as you go into the lower worlds. That's exactly the point. Uh, there is progressively greater levels of concealment, but it's still there. It's there, but concealed. It's not that there's less, right? This is the, the, the Alter Rebbe makes this point many times. It's not that there's less elokus in Asiya than there is in Atsilas. The, I mean, you can't talk about quantity anyway, but the same godliness that's in the highest worlds is in the lowest worlds. And the only difference is the degree, <coughs> the degree of concealment and hiding. So that's the four cups. Now, interestingly enough, uh, with each cup, just like with the Seder, right? With each cup you do something. Like with the first cup for the Seder, you say Kiddush, right? So... There is something you do with each cup, and uh, that is uh, we eat fruits with each cup, and I'll talk about the order of the fruits in a moment, and uh, what you do is, if you, have a, if you have the Seder, not everybody has the Seder, you recite some Psukim or some Gemara or some Mishnah or some Zohar about that particular fruit. So when you, and there are swarm that give you this. When you're eating olives, you talk about the olive <coughs> Psukim. When you're eating grapes, you talk about the grape sukkim, etc. Okay? So the concept is you, you, you talk about the unique quality of those particular fruits. So there are three different arrangements of fruit eating in a Tubishvat Seder. And, and it's, it's not, different people do different things, and it's not clear, there's not a unified minute. 
Some emphasize the seven species of Eretz Yisrael, the Shiva Saminim. So they would go with seven fruits, although they're not really all fruits. Let's be sure we know the Shiva Saminim. The Shiva Saminim are what? Wheat, chita, barley, gefen is grapes or wine, te'ena is fig, Rimon is pomegranate. Zeit Shemen is olives. And Devash, which is uh, honey, does not mean bee honey, but Devash is date. Date. Bee honey is not one of the seven species. It's kosher, even though the Gemara has to go through a lot of reasons. Why is, why is bee honey kosher? It comes from bees, but okay. Uh, but bee honey is kosher, uh, but it's not one of the seven species. When it mentions Devash in the Torah, it refers to date honey. Well, well, the Gemara discusses that it re- logically it would not be kosher, but ultimately uh, it says that the, it's not really from the bee. What happens is the bee sucks up nectar and it gets a little solidified through processes in the bee's body and then it excretes uh, the nectar uh, or, or spits it out or whatever, whatever the, the mechanism is and therefore it is not considered as coming from the bee. The bee is really just ingesting the nectar and then expelling it. Uh, but that's why some things are different. For example, uh, you have to be very careful about bee products. There are other products from bees besides honey. There is something called royal jelly. If you look at it, there is, that refers all, it's the same process. When the bee takes a nectar, it manufactures a lot of stuff, and the royal jelly has kind of more of the, more of the bee in it, so to speak. And royal jelly is extraordinarily healthy. It's one of those things that... Uh, is one of these miracle foods that you eat and like, but but uh, many people, many postcom say, oh, royal right. jelly is treif. It's not. It's not. Why does it have? Huh? It's like stuff bee pollen. It's stuff from the bee in it, but but it's not that. I mean, not that it doesn't have physical pieces of bee. I mean that that it doesn't have, but uh, it's so much part of uh, of what the bee produces. Because the bee has a, the bee's body has much more of a function in terms of producing it than it is the case with with, with honey. Okay. By the way, you know, I mean, you know, I don't know if you realize how important bees are. Uh, without bees, you basically don't have flowers, you don't have plant, you don't have trees, uh, you don't have uh, quite a lot of things. And uh, over the past uh, ten years, there has been uh, an unexplainable shortage of bees. A lot of bees are dying, and uh, for some reason, there's a shortage of bees that can actually endanger the whole agricultural cycle. It's a very, very serious thing when you don't have bees. But okay. Um, all right. Uh, so, one approach of the Tubishvat Seder is the Achilas Peros are the seven species. Now, here we do have a very interesting issue about the seven species. Let me mention an interesting halachic issue. Uh, if I have seven types of fruit in front of me, which order do I eat them in? Which bracha do I make first? So the interesting rule is that you make the bracha based on the order that they are in the pasuk, subject to one exception. Let, let's put aside wheat and barley, because wheat and barley is a little different, because wheat and barley have a different bracha. Wheat and barley, the bracha is bare mine mizonos. 
All the other fruits are berei priho eitz. So I'm going to put aside wheat and barley for a moment and simply ask this question. Let's assume I have olives, grapes, figs, pomegranates, and dates in front of me. I'm going to eat from all of them. But I only have to make one bracha, berei priho eitz, right? Once you make a bracha on one fruit, that covers all the other fruits. So which fruit, this is even during the year, which fruit should you make your bracha on when you have the shiva saminim? Well, first of all, let me make an obvious point. If you have shiva saminim and not shiva saminim, let's say I have grapes and an apple. And I'm going to eat both. If I'm, if I'm only going to eat one, then I only, you know, I, I don't have, I mean, if I only want an apple, I don't have to make a bracha on the grape. That, that, that's fine. But assuming I'm going to eat grapes and an apple, the halacha is I should make the bracha on the grape and cover the apple rather than make a bracha on the apple and cover the grape. Because since a grape is one of the seven species of Eretz Yisrael, you have to honor it. You have to give it a greater chashivas. So that's obvious. Grape, grape, ver- grape, and apple. You make the beret prio eights on the grape, unless you don't want to eat the grape. Then you then you make it on the apple. Is there also an exception like you're supposed to say a bracha on the fruit that's whole? So if the grape is cut up and the apple is full. Yes, that's a very good. That's a very good question. Uh, but and the, the, all these things are discussed. What if you have a question with priority rules? But uh, we say shiva saminim even beats out whole wholeness. Now, what if I have grapes and a date? Meaning, what if my two fruits are both of the Shiva Saminim? So which, order, so which one do I make the bracha on? So the answer is the one that is earlier in the verse. But there's a big exception to that. So <coughs> if I have, um, let's say, olive, right? Zayt Shemin is number three in the puzzle. Eretz Chita Saora. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Chita Saora. Gefen, yeah. Gefen is number three in the passage. Gefen is grapes. Right? Uh, so if I have grapes and a fig, since grapes is number three and fig is number four, you make the bracha on the grape and that covers the fig rather than make the bracha on the fig and cover the grape. But here is the trick. And actually, maybe, maybe we should write, write down. Yeah, why don't, why don't we write down the whole passage if, if you're willing to uh, write it down? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, this is something that if you, if you see it in writing, you'll, you'll understand it more. Eretz, Chita, Saora. Yeah, I think it's without you. Yeah, that's right. Sora, Gefen, Teina, Teina with an Aleph, Verimon, yeah, Eretz, thank you, Zait, Shemen, Udavash. Excellent. Now, do me a favor and circle the word Eretz the first time and circle the word Eretz the second time. Okay, yeah, then you want to translate, that's fine. Wheat, barley. <coughs> okay.
So, you'll notice that the word Eretz, land, appears twice in the Pasuk. So, priority is not necessarily based on the order in the Pasuk, but on its proximity to the word Eretz, which means the following. If I have an olive and I have a grape, let's look at it. Olives and grapes, although that doesn't sound like much an appetizing combination necessarily, <laughs> right? Now, a grape is number three from the first Eretz, and the olive is number six in the Pasuk, but it's number one from the second Eretz. So even though grape is number three and olive is number six, olive beats out grape because olive is number one from the second Eretz and grape is number three from the first Eretz. You see, get it? Same thing with, with dates. If you have even dates and grape, dates beat out the grape because date is number two from the second Eretz and grape is number three from the first Eretz. Now, uh, if you have Okay, I mean, that's kind of how you do it. In other words, uh, proximity to Eretz wins, but uh, we don't look at the list from one to se- six, seven rather, we look at the list from first Eretz and second Eretz. Okay, so if you have olive and wheat, uh, <coughs> so, all right, that's a very good question. Logically, based on what I just said, uh, the olive would beat out the wheat. I'm, 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 I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Wheat beats out olive for sure. The reason wheat beats out olive for sure is when both of them are in position one, the first Eretz wins. So wheat, wheat, wheat is in the number one position to the first Eretz, and Zayat is in the number one position to the second Eretz. Now the question is, what about barley and olive? Because barley is position two and olive is position one. Uh, but then you'd have a, a different problem, really, because the truth of the matter is the bracha for wheat and barley is mizonos anyway. So right. mizonos is always before any fruit. So in a, sense, in a sense, therefore, when I'm eating wheat or barley, that's always going to be number one. Not because of the shiva saminim, but because mizonos is made before ha'etz. And yeah. does it matter when you're which fruit to make the on, if it's a fresh fruit or a uh, For this purposes, no, no. Now, I just want to point out that once, now this is something people make a mistake, sometimes people think they got to follow this order for everything. No, this order just tells you which bracha you recite the ha'etz on. So if, for example, uh, I have all of these fruits, so it turns out, putting aside the wheat and the barley, which is mizonos, it turns out that the order would be olive, 
which is number one from the second Eretz, and then Devash, which is number two from the second Eretz, and then Gefen Te'ina Verimo. You see the order? But that just determines which one gets the honor of the bracha. Once you've made the bracha and the one you've chosen, you can eat the other fruits in any order you want. Okay? This is not a continuing obligation for how you eat the fruits. So if I only have uh, two fruits, I decide which one to make the bracha. But once I make the bracha, that's going to cover me for everything. So then I can eat the fruits in any order uh, I want. Okay? So that's the Seder based on the Shivas Haminim. And as I say, there are Svarim uh, that give you Psukim and teachings. Now, so that's based on seven, uh, wheat, barley, etc. Uh, now, there is another arrangement that eats 12 different types of fruits. And they overlap with the Shiva Sabina, but they add other things. And uh, the reason for that is Kabbalistic. And I'll just tell you what the reason is without fully explaining it. And that is Yudke Vavke. Hashem's four-letter name that we don't pronounce. The Yud and the He and the Vav and the He. That can be arranged in 12 different combinations. In fact, every month there's a different, what's called Siraf, a different combination of the Yud Ke Vav Ke. That's Mashpi on that month, a different divine power that comes into the month. So the Mekubalim correlate certain fruits with different spellings of Hashem's name. And therefore you eat the 12 fruits with the Kavana to be Mosheich, to pull into the world, the Koach of those different arrangements of Hashem's name. Right, so that would be, right, so we have the seven species Seder, we have the 12 species Seder, based on what are called Seirufim. Seirufim are combinations of the Shem Havaya. And they even have a remez, and I'm going to tell you a little bit of a complicated gematria, in the word Elan. Spell the word Elan. Elan is Aleph, Yud, Lamed, Nun. Now, do you know that uh, in Hebrew, in Kabbalah, uh, a word can be expanded with what is called miloi. What do we mean by miloi? Let's take the letter yud. You can spell out yud. Yud, vav, dalit. And for, ca- for calculating gematria, the Makubalim sometimes use miloi and do a gematria of the miloi. So, for example, the gematria of Elon as a plain gematria is what? Aleph is one. Yud is 10, that's 11. Lamed is 30, uh, that's 41. And Nun is 50, so that's 91. The gematria of Elon, plain, is 91. But if you spell out Elon, you get a much bigger gematria. Uh, maybe you want to help me write it again? I'll, I'll tell you how to spell it. Uh, Aleph is spelled... Aleph is Aleph, Lamed, okay, that's you. Aleph, Lamed, Pei, it's final Pei. Aleph, that's Aleph. Now Yud, do under it, do under it. Yud is Yud, Vav, Dalet. 
Lamid is Lamid Mem Dalit, and Nun is Nun Vav Nun. Right? That's called Mila. You see the concept? What you're doing is you're spelling out every letter. So now let's look at the gematria of Elon Bamiloi. Aleph is, uh, Aleph Lamed is 31, and 80 is what? Uh, 111, is that right? Mm-hmm. 31 and 80 is 111. Yud is 20. Uh, Yud is 20 under that. Lamed is uh, 74. And Nun is 106. So let's add up those numbers. 111 and 20 is 131. 131 and uh, 70 is 201. And 4 is 205. 205 is 311. Okay, the gematria of Elon Bamiloy is 311. Now, if you take the Shem Havaya, Yud Kevavke, the gematria is 26. Yud, Yud, Kevavke. Multiply 26 by 12. 26 times 12 should be 312. That's what it should come out. Uh, okay, 26 times 12. And by gematria, you can ignore a discrepancy of one. <laughs> that's, that's a rule of gematria. So, so, so the rule is that Elon Bamiloy equals 12 times the Shem Havaya. And that's why they eat 12 fruits on the Rosh Hashanah Le'ilan to bring down the divine influence of the Shem Havai. Again, that's, I don't want to go into too much, but just to get a sense of how everything is significant. Fine. Yeah. I'm sorry. Huh? 12 fruits. That's 12 fruits, according to the second opinion. Then we come to the Shita of Rav Chaim Vital, who was the great, Rav Chaim Vital was the great, great Talmud of the Ari where he says, this is amazing, you eat 30 fruits, 33-0 fruits on Tubishvat. Now, I always say that um, Tubishvat uh, is a very important day for boys in yeshiva because it might be the only day a year they eat fruit. Uh, you know, uh, <laughs> I mean, you know uh, women tend to be more uh, conscientious about their fruits and vegetables than than the men, so they have to have one day a year where they have to eat fruit. Uh, but where does Rav Chaim Vital get 30? So this goes back to the following idea. This is connected to a theme about the four cups. He says, 10 of the fruits should have inedible peels, but edible insights. Example, banana, orange, pomegranate, right, inedible Peel, edible on the inside. Or nuts. Nuts, that's correct, nuts. So we'll call that category one. Category two are the opposite. The fruit is totally edible on the outside, but it has a pit in the middle that you can't eat. That would be a peach, an apricot, a cherry, an avocado. An avocado. Category three are the fruits that you can eat the whole thing, except for maybe very small seeds that don't really count. An example would be an apple, grapes, 
right? Most of the time, you can just chew the grapes. So you have ten types, of, ten representatives of these three categories of fruits. Now, what do they represent? Why, why, why do we have these three? This is Rav Chaim Vital. Why do we have these three categories of fruit? So he says the following. The fruits represent a spiritual energy that Hashem put into these fruits. And different types of fruits emanate from different types of worlds. He says, this world is the world of Asiya. And the world of Asiya, the divinity is concealed in a klipa. Quite literally, what does the word klipa even mean? The word klipa means a peel, a barrier. So the lowest level of fruits, <coughs> so to speak, represent a fruit in which the holiness, the goodness of it, the nurturance of it, is blocked, is concealed, unless you break it. So therefore, the nuts and the, uh, the oranges, uh, and like, actually I shouldn't, kind of, avocados are actually, uh, they, they get hit on both sides, they have inedible outside and inside. So an avocado would actually be, uh, uh, the type one fruit, represents the world of Asiya, where the holiness and goodness of the fruit is concealed in a klipa. The second, ca- and the reason it's ten is because every world has ten spheros. There are ten spheros in every one of the worlds. Uh, the second category represents a higher spiritual level in which there's still a concealment, there's still a klipa, but the holiness is so strong that it breaks through. So it leaves the pit in the middle. So there's still a blockage there, but it's surrounded by the holiness that breaks out. And that represents the higher world of Yetzira. And then the holiest is the one in which the Kedusha totally breaks away from any barrier. And that is the world of Berea. Now, one second though. But what about the world of Atsilas, right? You'll notice that these three categories of fruits are Asiya, Yitzira, Berea. What about Atsilas? Atsilas, because it's pure Elokuts, there is no physicality at all. So there's no concept of concretization in the physical. And that's why some say for Atsilas, you use smell, you get spices that you smell because that's a purely spiritual sensation. So, very, very complicated, right? How do you integrate all of this? Uh, it's not, not, not at all clear. We have the four cups of wine, which are the four worlds. We have the Shiva Saminim. Uh, we have the 12 fruit seder. We have the 30 fruit seder. Uh, and the 30 fruit seder is also connected to Bria, Yitzira, Asiya, right? Bringing down the, the holiness. And then Atsilos is connected to Reach, right? So, there are many, many different associations. Uh, and you know, most of us, including myself, we don't really understand all of these different dinyanim. Uh, but the one thing is that there is indeed a, a mitzvah to eat the fruits of Eretz Yisrael on Tu That much uh, for sure there is. A mitzvah? Well, well, I mean, not a, it's not. A, yeah, well, not, the Shulchan doesn't say it, but, but the Mishnah Berurah says it. I mean, uh, the commentaries on the Shulchan Aruch absolutely said, and uh, the Alter Rebbe Shulchan Aruch brings it down. So uh, it is a minah Yisrael that's very, very proper. So even if uh, you know, we don't know all the Kabbalistic intentions, it is an important uh, thing to do. It's a beautiful, beautiful way of 
feeling great, grateful to Hashem for all of the chesed uh, that he has given, that he has given us. So now I, I want to talk about a halachic aspect, which Tubishvat is very important to, but this has really nothing to do with Tubishvat per se, but it's the halachic implication of Tubishvat, which is very, very fascinating. Uh, and you're not going to be celebrating that per se, but it's a halacha that, that those of you that have trees or want to, want to ha- own trees at some point in your life uh, need to be aware of. And that is, there is a law in the Torah called orla. Orla means uh, when you plant a tree, the first three years after a tree is planted, any fruit that grows during the first three years is forbidden to eat. An iser diaraisa, to eat the fruit of the first three years. By the way, people misunderstand that. Sometimes people think, I can't eat the fruit for three years, but after three years I could eat the fruit. Anything that is orla is forbidden forever. Right? The fruit that grows during the first three years can never be eaten. It doesn't go off after three years. The fruit that grows after three years, that can be eaten. Now, what is unique about orla is that orla is one of the few agricultural prohibitions that even apply outside of Israel. So the Isser of Orla is not only for the fruit of Eretz Yisrael. The Isser of Orla is even for the fruit of Chutz La'aretz. But there's a very big difference. And that is, in Eretz Yisrael, even if you're in doubt, if I don't know if something is Orla or not, I'm not allowed to eat it. Suffolk, if something is a doubtful uh, prohibition of the Torah law, it's got to be strict. But Suffolk, Orla, and Chutz La'aretz is mutter, which means to say that's why I can go into a store in America and I can buy an apple. How can I buy an apple? Maybe it's Orla. Yeah, the answer is maybe it's Orla, but if I don't know, the halacha says I'm allowed to be lenient. In Eretz Yisrael, I would have to know. That is why any hashgacha, I mean, you don't have to know yourself, but that if you're buying fruits under supervision, hashgacha, part of the hashgacha is to determine that the fruit is not orla. Uh, if you don't have a hashgacha on orla, you're not allowed to buy the fruit. In chutz la'aretz, I can buy the fruit because in chutz la'aretz, orla is forbidden only if you know that it's orla, it is not prohibited if you are in Suffolk, if it's Orla. Yeah. So is Orla Chutzla or it's um, the Rabbana? It, no, it is, it is the Arisa, but uh, it's a halacha of Moshe Misenai. It was an oral law given to Moshe, and part of the oral law included a heter that me Suffolk it is permitted. So it's a deviation. It's an exception from the normal rule. <coughs> Even though it's a Suffolk the Arisa, <coughs> the Torah permits you to be lenient in this type of Suffolk. Okay, this is the law of, of, of Orla. Yeah. So let's say that since you don't have responsibility, you can be lenient, you can assume that the fruit is not from a you know, third year, uh, second year tree, etc. Yeah. in Chutzlaretz, but let's say that you're at an apple orchard and you're going apple picking. Do you have responsibility to ask them about this? In Chutzlaretz? Yeah. No, no, you're not. You're not. Even, even, if you're, even if you're harvesting and you're not uh, buying it in the store, you don't have uh, a problem. The problem would basically, so essentially the problem would only be in your, own, in your own orchard where you know. Oh, okay. Okay. Now, 
The other thing about Orla that is very, very complicated, very important to know, is that the Orla clock can be reset every time the tree is moved or replanted. Now, here is the thing you need to know. Very, very few people plant a tree from a seed. You know, like Johnny Appleseed here. You know, they don't like, they don't take a seed and put it in the ground and get a tree. That takes, takes a pretty long time. So what do we do? We buy trees, saplings, from nurseries. We go to, both in Israel and in Chutzlars, we go to a nursery and we buy a tree. Now, you might think, if you didn't know the halacha, oh, as long as the tree is more than three years old, I'm safe, and I don't have an orla problem, not necessarily. Because when you buy a tree in a nursery and you replant it in your backyard, that's a new planting. And you'll have, you may have an orla problem for the next three years. Now, this depends. If when you bought it, there was a ball of soil attached, right? Normally, uh, when the saplings have a lot of soil on them, so the roots were not uprooted from that soil. So then it depends if the soil could keep the tree alive for around a month without replanting, then uh, you don't have to start Orla again. But if it's only a little bit of soil and it couldn't uh, really keep the tree alive for that long, Orla starts again. So this is a very important point that when you get a sapling and you're re- 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 transplanting the sapling, there may be an Orla problem even if the tree is 10 years old. Okay, that's one thing to, to keep in mind. Okay. Uh, and that's probably why for the home gardener that, that would be the, serious, the most serious Orla problem uh, in which when you get something from a nursery, you may have to start the Orla rules, the Orla time periods over again. Is the, is the halakha against like fruits that grew like the third year of fruits growing or just the third year since the tree was planted? No, no, that's a very important point. It is not the third year of fruits growing. It is the third year of the tree planted. So, for example, if a tree did not produce fruit for three years, and that sometimes happens, it's not orla. There's no orla at all because you had no fruits for those first three years. So orla does not depend on there being fruits. It just depends on three years from the planting. Okay. But here is the thing you need to know. This is also very, very interesting, that the three years don't have to be complete. Uh, And that is the way you compute it. Uh, I'll, I'll give you an example. You'll see exactly from this example. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to first give you the, the law, and then I'll explain the, the halacha. The rule is, if you plant a fruit tree on or before the 15th of Av, not too much, it's 15th of Av, which is towards the end of the summer, the 15th of Av, which is only uh, 45 days before Rosh Hashanah, when Tishrei comes, that counts for a whole year. And then the second year is Tishrei to Tishrei. And the third year is Tishrei to Tishrei. And then you just have to wait until two Bishvat. Uh, let, let's, take, let's, take, let's take a particular example. Let's imagine I planted a fruit tree on the 14th of Av, before the 15th of Av, the 14th of Av of 57, uh, let's say, 78. 
Okay, remember the numbers here. I may forget them. Yeah, yeah, that's a good example. That, that's, that's, I appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, 15th of Av, or before, or before. 5778. That's the year. So, Rosh Hashanah of 5779, I've completed year one. But so, five. Even though it's only been two months. Yeah, only two months. Right. So, Rosh Hashanah of. Sorry, Rosh Hashanah of 5779. Year, finished year one. Rosh Hashanah, 5780. Year two. Rosh Hashanah, 5781. I finished year three. Sorry. <laughs> Year three, but I do have to wait until two bishvat, which means which means to say, two bishvat of five seven eight one. The fruit from that point onwards is no longer orla. So how long have I really waited? Really, uh, only two months, two months, a year, a year, and around uh, five five months. So really, it's only two years and seven months in a case like that, right? So you really haven't waited seven years. Now, that's only if you planted it on the 15th of Av or before. Mm. Let me just give you one more example. What if you planted it the 16th of Av? So here, it's very tricky. You don't get the benefit of the partial year. And your year does not start until Tishrei of 5779. And you have to have a year to 5780, and a year to 5781, and a year to 5782. Why is that the Ah, so I'll, I'll explain that in a moment. So first I want you to see the difference between planting it on the 15th of Av and planting it on the 16th of Av. If you plant it on the 16th of Av, you literally have to wait until Rosh Hashanah of 5782. If you planted it on the 15th of Av or earlier, uh, you have two Bishvat of 5781. Now, the difference is the following. The difference is that in order to get the benefit of a short year, that short year, there are two conditions. Condition number one is it must have been planted for at least 30 days. 30 days. But number two... A tree is not considered firmly planted until it's been in the ground for two weeks. Because it takes two weeks for the root structure mm. to take hold. So consequently, if I need 30 days of planting for the year to count, and I need two weeks for the root system to take into the ground, so t two weeks is 14 days plus 30, is 44 days. So I need 44 days in the old year to count as a year, and it happens to be, the 15th of Av, happens to be 44 days before Rosh Hashanah. Mashiachim, uh, if I plant it after the 15th of Av, I'm not going to have 30 days of a planted tree in that year. Okay? So this is a very important aspect of Tu that uh, Tu uh, determines 
in cases where I planted on the 15th of Av or earlier, Tu B'Shvat determines when the Isra of Warla goes off. Now, one other, one other point, I just want to clarify something. What defines a fruit as Orla or not Orla is not when it ripened, it's when it budded. This is important. What is budding? Uh, if you know, most fruit trees produce a flower, like say an apple tree, a cherry tree. In fact, I'm from uh, uh, the Washington DC area, so uh, every year there's a famous uh, cherry blossom festival and cherry trees blossom. Right uh, during Nisan, there's even a bracha that we recite when we see trees in blossom. Right, there's a bracha. You try to see a fruit tree blossoming. So what happens is a fruit tree produces a flower, and then the flower falls off, and then you have a little bud. The sap produces a bud, and that bud becomes the fruit. Now the bud is not the ripening of the fruit; it's the very beginning of the fruit. I call it chanata in Hebrew. Chanata is budding. So orla is defined by chanata, not complete ripening. So by that I mean, once you've defined your orla period, any fruit that had its budding within that orla period is going to be orla. So for example, in the case where you planted on the 15th of Av, and uh, the fruit is orla until two until two bishvat of five seven eight one right. That means any fruit that budded before two bishvat of five seven eight one is orla. Any fruit that budded after two bishvat of five seven eight one is not orla. So we don't care when it was harvested, and we don't care when it even ripened. We are looking to when it budded. Now, this creates uh, interesting issues about Shemitah. Let me explain the intersection here. Because Shemitah, all of the fruit that grows during Shemitah is Hefker. Now, normally, if I have a vineyard, I have an orchard that has Orla in it, I don't have to put up a sign that it's Orla. Because who am I protecting? Thieves? In other words, uh, you know, I don't have to say, oh, you can't steal my fruit because it's Orla. You're not supposed to steal my fruit at all. But on Shemitah, I got to put up a sign. Because on Shemitah, everyone's allowed to come in and take it. So if I have an apple tree, you're allowed to come in and take it. But if I have an Orla apple tree, you're not allowed to eat it. So I am chayev during Shemitah to put a sign on my Orla trees that you cannot take it. I don't have to give you that warning the rest of the years. But on Shemitah, I have to give you that particular, uh, that particular warning. Okay? Oh, so that's an interesting point. It's a very interesting question. The Gemara seems to say you're supposed to burn it. But Lamaisa, we don't do that. In fact, it's even a kasha, the Mephorshim mask. Uh, we throw it into the garbage, basically. It's not holy. It's just not supposed to be uh, eaten. Uh, in fact, you're not even supposed to feed it to your animals because that's getting benefit from it. Mm. And you're not supposed to get benefit from Orla. You can't it right, you can't compost it. That, that's correct. That's getting benefit. Yeah. Um, two well, okay, that would be fine. Of course, you wouldn't be allowed to lie. You couldn't put uh, on a non-orla tree that it's... No, uh, you would, yeah. like, get your trees on purpose right. so that they okay. can get in orla. That was the first thing. The second thing is, like, why do we even... What, like, why is orla even a thing? Like, 
it, it's hard to know. I mean, some simply say that generally speaking, the first three years of, of growth, the, the fruit is inferior and it would be uh, healthier to let the tree get into a better reproductive cycle. But uh, that's a very difficult reason because, you know, th- that should be my choice. Why, why does the Torah care if I eat a less healthy fruit or, or, or whatever, whatever it would be? Uh, I, I don't know. I, we don't really have a good reason. But I will tell you this. Orla is the source of another, which is only a minog Yisrael, not a din, but it's a minog that's widely followed, and it's based on Orla, and that is the minog of upsharing. That's right, correct. Uh, the idea that we don't uh, give a, a, a boy his first haircut till he's three years old, and that's when we give him a yarmulke, and that's when we give him sitzes. Uh, the concept is that just as the Torah says that the fruit of the first three years is kind of wild. It cannot be directed. It cannot yet be elevated for holiness. So there's a recognition that a, going back to the idea that a human is like a tree, <laughs> and, that is, and maybe that's the reason for it, or the kind of a remez, that until a child is three, he's not yet ready to really be guided and directed. And uh, once he's three, now we're ready to, able, to be able to give him chinuch and, uh, and the like. So the, 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 the source of upsharing, again, it's, it's not a chiv. If you wanted to give your child a haircut before three, uh, it's not forbidden to do it. Uh, but it's a widespread minog that people delay the haircut until three, and it's based on the idea of orla and the like. And apparently it's an important enough minog, even though it's only a minog, that we even allow it on cholamoid, which is actually very unusual. Cholamoid is normally very strict that you're not allowed to get haircuts on cholamoid. And yet, this is considered to be enough of a mitzvah that if the child's third birthday is on Cholomoe, we permit, we permit the haircut even on Cholomoe. Huh? Uh, well, uh, that's a good question. I have to, I have to check. I, I believe we matter, I, I believe it's a Kalvachomer, to tell you the truth. I mean, logically, if we permit uh, getting a haircut, uh, during Cholomoed, which is forbidden in the Mishnah, then all those other periods, which are later than the Mishnah, they're not in the Gemara even, I think for sure we would permit it. So I would imagine that even during the nine days. You're allowed. Yes, yes. I can't imagine that we would be more lenient for Cholomoed. Cholomoed is very strict. Right. The two halachas of Cholomoed that are very strict, and a lot of people take it uh, too lightly, is doing laundry and getting haircuts are very, very strict. When you say holomoid, yeah. you literally mean any holiday that has a holomoid? That's correct, yeah. Well, well there are only two holidays that have holomoid. Oh, yeah, Pesach and Sukkot. Shavuos doesn't have a holomoid. Right. But holomoid uh, are very, very strict regarding laundry, and everyone always has the perennial question, I've run out of clothes and this and that. Uh, it's a big, big problem. Uh, the truth is, many poskim say it is much better to buy new clothes <coughs> during Cholomoe than to launder, uh, you know, the clothing that you and have. why can't you do So these are rabbinic enactments, but they're strict. The rabbis were afraid that if you would be given the ability to wash your clothes during Cholomoe, you would not bother to prepare enough clothes for, from before the holiday. Uh, mm-hmm. Same thing with haircuts. You're not going to bother to get a haircut or whatever because uh, you can do it during Cholomite. And they wanted you to, to maximize your preparations for Yom Tif before the Yom Tif. So they basically said, if you're not conscientious enough to take care of these things before Yom Tif, we're not going to let you fix it. Right. 
and Yom Kippur itself. Like a case yeah, there are many exceptions. Sure, sure, there are many, many exceptions. For example, children's clothing you can wash because children's clothing uh, who play in the mud, even if you cl- cleaned it before Yom Kippur, it would uh, get dirty. So children's clothing can be what? Haircuts. Uh, haircuts uh, the exceptions there are, 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 are far and few between. I mean, there may be some unusual situations that if you were in mourning, you were in Avelis, and you weren't allowed to cut your hair till Cholomoed, so we might allow you to do it. Uh, that would be a question of Avelis. Or you were in prison. I mean, the, 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 the mission gives cases you were in prison, you, you were on a ship, whatever it would be. But in the normal court... Now, there is, there is, among the modern Orthodox, there is a shita like this. There is a, an opinion that says that any person who shaves on a daily basis... If he shaves every day, could shave on Cholomoe. You know, a man. Uh, so there, is, such, there is such a view, but uh, most uh, do not agree with that. What if they shave every two days? <laughs> yeah, so it seems it has to be every day, uh, etc. Every day, and the like. Uh, yep. What about if someone, back to Sarah, if someone planted on, let's say, this, the 17th of Adam or whatever? Yeah. Could he just wait till Rosh Hashanah 5782? And that's, the, or does he have to wait till Tubishvat 5782? Oh, so that, excellent. I'm glad you brought it up. Uh, he does not have to wait to Tubishvat. That, that's the important difference because you see the difference. When you plant after the 15th of Av, your Orla period is not over until more than three years have already passed. 5782. Right? When I planted, uh, the, let's say the 16th of Av, 5778. So all of 5779 is one year, all of 5780 is one year, and all of 5781. Uh, right, uh, so by the time it's Rosh Hashanah 5782, I already have three complete years. When I have three complete years, I don't have to wait to Tu See the difference? I only have to wait to Tu when on the Rosh Hashanah before, I didn't have three complete years. That's and the why idea. So once again, because Tu that, that's, that's, that's actually the non-Kabbalistic meaning that Tu is the new year of the trees, meaning it ends the Orla period. Mm-hmm. So some of these have non-Kabbalistic meanings. It simply means for Orla purposes, it is the end of the uh, Orla cycle. And the reason is because for tree growth, it's the... Uh, time of a new sap, a new sap comes up, so it's like the end of the, the old tree year and the beginning of the new tree year, okay? So that's Orla. So as I say, uh, that tends not to be discussed at Tupishvat Seders because it's a very technical point, uh, but it's an interesting aspect of Rosh Hashanah for Ilonot. Uh, it's the new year for trees. But as I say, Orla is something you need to be aware of uh, if you are a gardener. Now keep in mind, Orla only applies to trees. It does not apply to vegetables or grain. So what about fruit bushes, like raspberries? Ah, so then you get a real question on it. These are big shadows. So then the question becomes, uh, what's called a tree? What if you have uh, blueberries, for example, things that grow on bushes? Now, strawberries, strawberries, right. So in some ways, this is similar to the question do I make a Borei Priha H or Borei Priha Dhamma? Right, we have this perennial question. On uh, bush fruits, do you make Ho H? Is it a tree? Now, that's an important question, not only for the bracha, 
which is maybe the way you've normally studied it, it's also a question whether the laws of Orla apply. Uh, and so indeed, for blueberries, uh, the laws of Orla do apply. Uh, for bananas, they do not apply, because although bananas, right, bananas do grow on a tree, but again, uh, it doesn't have branches, etc. Yes, you do. You make eggs on blueberries. That, that's correct. Strawberries, you make hardama because they're, they're so close to the ground. Right? So uh, this issue, so when you study the laws of brachos, when do you make eggs? when do you make hardama, <coughs> keep in mind it's also going to be relevant with respect to orla. Right? A lot of things. Papaya is uh, not so pushy. There's a lot of different things in which there's uh, different opinions. Uh, does orla apply to them or not? Now, again, as I say, when you buy uh, anything under hashkacha in Eretz Yisrael, and fruits and vegetables, you have to have reliable hashkacha because of truma and maser and everything else. So you don't have to worry about it. I mean, if the hashkacha is reliable, they have factored this in for you. So it's not something, I don't hope I'm not going to make you worry, it's not something you have to independently worry about. And in chutzlaris, you don't have to worry about it because if it's a suffake in chutzlaris, you're allowed to be lenient. So for all practical purposes, the issue of orla is only going to be relevant uh, in your own garden when you're aware of when the tree was planted or, or replanted. Okay, so that's uh, kind of some background on uh, Tu B'Shvat. Anyway, wish you all a uh, happy Tu B'Shvat, Rosh Hashanah and uh, may it be a time of renewal of your sap and uh, to recognize uh, the productive kochos that HaKadosh Baruch Hu put into into all of us. Okay, see. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. All right. No,